Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Dan Goldman currently serves as legal counsel at Mayo Clinic and as an advisory board member to the Mayo Clinic Center for Social Media. He's on Twitter, Daniel G280, and he specializes in Internet law, HIPAA and, the, and privacy law, telemedicine, trademark law, copyright law, and social media legal issues. He joins us today for a discussion about social media and uh, HIPAA. Daniel, welcome. Thanks, Eric. Pleasure to be here. So tell us in general, what is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, also known as HIPAA? Well, surprisingly, it was actually enacted um, uh, under the Clinton administration um, with an idea towards making uh, health information more electronic and more portable. Um, As part of that, however, it contains some very significant uh, provisions which require lots of protections for health information. And so most people really think of it as kind of a health privacy act, and, and in fact it really is. It's federal protection for health information. Give us some specific examples of how computers, email, or social media might lead to HIPAA violations. Well, um, HIPAA, obviously, since it, it deals with privacy, um, contains some pretty uh, strict provisions um, for the benefit of, of patients and, and other folks who have health information, um, you know, with an idea towards making sure it remains secure, um, and there are limitations on how uh, those involved in healthcare can use it. So the, the general rule is that um, no one can use or disclose your health information uh, a third party uh, without your permission or authorization unless it's for treatment, payment, or health care operations. So those are kind of the big exceptions. So as your doctor, if I can use your health information or disclose it for treatment, I can use it uh, to, to process payment for you or for a concept called healthcare operations, which means kind of quality type things. Um, apart from that, I need your authorization. So um, if I'm your doctor and we also happen to be connected on Facebook, for example, or we're connected on Twitter, I wouldn't be able to disclose your health information without your permission. So the main concern, obviously, is kind of the inadvertent disclosure of health information. You and I can obviously have a conversation and I can get your permission to use your health information Say, for example, I wanted to do, you know, a story about a a rare condition that that you had and thought it might be beneficial for others to hear about that. You and I could certainly have that conversation and we could discuss maybe doing a story on Facebook to help other people. But the bigger concern would be I just do that without any kind of permission. That would obviously be a violation of HIPAA. So beyond uh, a a physician, how might an employee of a covered entity unknowingly violate HIPAA? And, and obviously, as, as you're pointing out, the provisions of HIPAA apply to anybody. Uh, in, for example, we're a covered entity, and so anybody within our institution who comes in contact with 
you know, the term is PHI, protected health information. So, you know, anybody from, you know, the person who, you know, is the lawyer or, you know, the person who cleans an exam room, we all might come in contact with protected health information and we all have an obligation to keep that secure. So, you know, nurse, doctor, whoever has that information might not be intending to, to disclose that information, but, um, one thing you have to keep in mind is that to be de-identified, you have to really remove a lot of information. And under HIPAA, there, there are two ways to de-identify information. The most common is called the safe harbor method. And what that means is you have to take that information and remove 18 identifiers, and that includes any kind of date related to the information. So it's not just taking somebody's name or, or just taking somebody's name out of health information is not enough to make it de-identified. So something that you might not think through might be the situation where you post something on Facebook um, and, you know, everything that you post is date and time stamped. And so you might be talking in some detail about a patient. And so even a seeming well-meaning post, for example, of, hey, I just delivered a beautiful, you know, baby boy. There were lots of complications, but I'm so happy I brought a new life into the world. If that were date and time stamped, and in addition, you know, that we're in a small community where there were not a lot of births that day or there were a hospital and that was the only baby delivered, that might be very identifiable. So, so again, it, it's, you know, that inadvertent disclosure, which is really the concern. What constitutes individually identifiable health information? Um, it, it's pretty broad. Um, it's basically anything that relates to your physical or mental health. Um, and it has to be received in, in terms of uh, or in the context of, of a covered entity or someone else who is required by HIPAA to keep that confidential. But so, for example, if you're talking to your doctor virtually or, or you know, your physician, anybody in, in that sort of chain of care at a covered entity, virtually anything that you disclose to them about your physical or mental health would be considered protected health information. Talk to us, if you would, about the HIPAA security role and uh, what kind of national standards for the security of electronic protected health information does it set that employees of covered entities need to be aware of? And, and I will admit to not being quite as much of a security rule jock as, as I am on the privacy rule. I, my responsibilities focus more on the privacy rule side of things. Um, the the good thing, I, I guess it sort of depends on your, your frame of reference, the good thing about the security rule is that ten, it tends to get less into detail about prescribing particular um, types of standards. Um, you know, the, the general rule is you have to um, enact standards which are reasonably um, tailored to keeping the information private, and you're sort of given, it, it's sort of up to the individual entities to decide what's sort of the best way to address most of those standards. So it's less about dictating a particular technology and more about dictating that you find ways to keep things secure and do what's reasonable under the circumstances. Can you give an example of how someone might knowingly compromise the security rule with social media? Um, boy, let's think about that. Um, you know, I think probably... Um, You know, I, I think using a, a means of communication that you know to not be secure would be the best way to do it. Um, best is probably the wrong word, but would be the way where you're most likely to get yourself in trouble. 
I think you're you're less likely to violate the security rule, and it's really more about kind of the privacy rule side of things. So, for example, even email, um, it isn't mandated that you use encrypted email under HIPAA, um, at least prior to the most recent enactments or revisions, um, but you do lose some protections. If you encrypt things, you're in kind of a safe harbor. Um, and so, for example, if, if something's intercepted but it's encrypted, it's not considered a breach. So, um, But if it is intercepted um, and it's not uh, encrypted, it, it is considered a breach. So, so, again, HIPAA doesn't mandate encrypted email. I think just about everybody uses encrypted email for protected health information because you, you do get the benefits of kind of being in a safe harbor. What rights does HIPAA give patients over medical information, and why do employees of covered entities need to be aware of them? Well, individuals get lots of rights. It's obviously their health information in, in many ways. And so, so obviously, I mean, we start with the idea that an, an individual can always disclose their own health information. So a question I often get is, hey, if somebody wants to post something on our Facebook wall or post something about themselves on Twitter, can they do that? And, and obviously, yet yeah, it's their health information. So if they want to disclose that they have a condition, that's certainly up to them. Um, but I think what you're talking about also is the situation of, you know, you've gone to see your doctor and there's information um, in, in our medical records and what rights do patients have. And, you know, there are a number of rights. Probably the biggest of those are the rights to get accounting of, of where um, your health information is disclosed to. Um, and the right to request an amendment of their health record if they think something's inaccurate in there. Um, now, I think prior to the most recent uh, revisions of the rules, they don't have a right to actually um, have the information changed. They have the right to make the request, and if the covered entity believes it's not appropriate for uh, specific reasons in the statute, they can deny the request, but you certainly have the right to make that request. Talk to us, if you would, about uh, the patient privacy rule and how does it actually protect individual medical records and other personal health information? And I guess I'm not sure I'm completely following the question. I mean, the, the, you mean the privacy rule as opposed to the security rule? Correct. Yeah, and that's most of what we've been talking about. Again, it's that, that limitation on disclosure. All of that comes from the privacy rule. And so the idea, again, is um, you're limited, you as a um, healthcare provider or other covered entity um, that might get health information, you have limitations on use and disclosure. And typically the, the limitations are you can't use it or disclose it um, except for treatment, payment, healthcare operations. And again, there are a few other sort of narrower exceptions for being you know, related to law enforcement or the Department of Defense and things like that. But the general rule is the treatment, payment, healthcare operations are the only exclusions um, that allow you to use and disclose health information without the, the authorization of the patient. Now, the uh, National Labor Relations Act is starting to be uh, heralded by terminated employees um, if they have been critical of their employer in an effort to improve their working conditions. If an employee of a covered entity was to share patient information in the attempt to improve their working conditions, would that be permissible? Probably not. Um, the National Labor Relations Board, um, as you, you correctly know, has become very active in, in terms of um, what they view as protecting employee rights. And generally, 
Um, you have the right to discuss wages, hours, and working conditions in, in situations where that you know might be heard by other employees or where you're speaking to other employees, and it gets back to, to the idea that under under the National Labor Relations Act, you have that right to you know collectively bargain and 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 talk with other employees about those issues. Now, for that reason, um, the NLRB has come in and, and sort of had a twofold strategy. One is um, for employees who have been terminated, um, they are putting limitations on um, the reasons why you might terminate an employee. So if it is for that kind of what they call protected speech, that's going to be problematic. Um, the other issue is um, they've actually been looking at um, uh, social media policies and social media policies that are considered to be overbroad, um, which might chill that protected speech they have invalidated or, or found to be violating the National Labor Relations Act. Um, the, the acting general counsel, the head lawyer of the, the NLRB, has issued a number of reports um, kind of giving guidance to employers and to the industry about how they might um, uh, discipline employees and draft policies but still keep on the right side of the National Labor Relations Act. And, and most employers have looked at those and, and felt and really struggled with that because it, it appears to imply that there really is very little ability to discipline for statements on social media or to advise employees about um, strictures like confidential information, business confidential information, things like that, because these reports have said if you use very broad terms like don't um, post confidential information or private information um, through your social media posts, the NLRB has criticized that and said that's too overbroad. You need to be more specific about that. Now, if you look in those reports and you look carefully, the one exception that they have kind of admitted, or one of the few, is that for very heavily regulated industries like healthcare, like finance, um, where there are legal restrictions on privacy, it is fine to let employees know in your social media policy that they have to comply with those laws, um, and as well... Um, uh, to discipline employees for, for violating those legal restrictions. But again, I think the, what you have to keep in mind is the broad pronouncement, don't, don't um, post anything that's private or confidential, the NLRB probably is not going to be as happy with. What you need to do is follow that up with something along the lines of, of something that's really targeted towards HIPAA and, and privacy. So, um, you know, do not post confidential or private information. For example, you must comply with all of the rules, um, you know, all of the state and federal privacy rules such as HIPAA, just as you would with, with other information that, that isn't on social media. So you mentioned policy. With respect to a social media policy for an organization that's regulated by HIPAA, what unique provisions would you look for in that type of a policy? You know, I would argue it's actually not that different. I mean, I give a lot of presentations on, on drafting effective social media policies, and, and I do kind of have a healthcare version and a non-healthcare version, but they're, they're really not very different. And I think if you look at our social media policy, I don't know that it's dramatically different from, from folks in other industries. I do think, obviously, the emphasis on privacy is probably a, a bit stronger. I mean, that's that's sort of point one in our in our policy, as it should be. I would say for any healthcare provider, anybody involved in healthcare. I mean, it really is the watchword of our industry. And if you 
people don't have confidence that you're going to protect very sensitive information. You know, it's not only a legal issue, it's, it's a brand issue. And, and for most of us, that's actually even more important than the legal issue. I mean, our brand is a multi-billion dollar asset and, and you know, tarnishing that brand by having people believe we, we play fast and loose with privacy is is even a greater risk than the, the regulatory penalties we pay. So, so I think that the differences would be probably the, the stress on privacy um, that needs to be to be really brought out, and and I think um, giving people some understanding of the ways they might inadvertently violate privacy. So, for example, the the example I gave of you know understanding that de-identified for you to post information that's de-identified. You really have to remove all dates and the ability to inadvertently um, do that through postings on social media is important to let people know. So probably as important as the actual policy itself is the training and the guidance that you give people around the policy. You know, the best policy in the world is kind of useless if it sits on a shelf or if it's on your intranet and either people don't look at it or don't really understand the nuance. So I would encourage people, especially, I mean, in any industry, but especially in healthcare, to really provide education. It'd be important to add it into your new employee orientation, add it to your yearly or, or your regular compliance training. You know, everybody, I, I hope, understands this, but just about everybody who's entering the workforce these days really has grown up with social media. Um, I have two kids, you know, 19 and 17, and they've spent a good chunk of their lives on Facebook. And so, you know, there really is that that urge to share everything in, that's interesting that happens um, in, in your life on social media. So it really is about getting people to take the extra three seconds before they hit post on their you know, mobile phone or their, their computer to say, Ooh, wait a minute, is that the identified? Is that appropriate for me to post? Um, so, so I think education is, is probably equally as important as your policy. I guess the other difference I would, would suggest maybe is in there, although I think it probably should be in everybody's policy, is kind of the concept of professionalism. Um, and so even if you can post something, you, you may want to ask, is that appropriate and is that in keeping with your role as a healthcare provider or a doctor or a nurse? Um, and I think those of us who are lawyers face that same issue too of, there are lots of things I could say about clients which might not violate um, attorney-client privilege or privacy, but they're just kind of really not in keeping with, with good professional ethics. Um, so, so I think that's something that you may want to think about at your institution um, and think about how you can incorporate that in your, um, in your policy as to what is the appropriate level of professionalism uh, that, that you want, you expect your employees to keep. So I guess you're saying, I mean, do you foresee a time when social media training becomes as commonplace as, say, sexual harassment training or sensitivity training? I, I certainly think it should be. I, I honestly think it should be addressed in everybody's um, orientation and um, uh, compliance training. Uh, it, now, I know reasonable minds differ um, about whether you allow your employees to be on social media um, or encourage it. I mean, I think we're at one end of the spectrum where we're not only fine with our employees being on social media, we actually in some ways encourage it. We, we like our folks to be out there saying and doing good things. So there's a lot of value to it. Now, I understand a lot of institutions would say, you know what, there's just too much risk. We don't really want our employees there talking about um, you know, things related to, to what they do. Um, but the reality is you 
can't police it in a lot of ways. One, as we just discussed, under the National Labor Relations Act, employees have a right to speak about their wages, hours, and working conditions. So you're never going to completely prohibit it. And even if you enact a rule saying, you know, not on company time, we we don't want you um, on Facebook or or whatever, and we're going to block it at our institution, I'd argue that's a little bit, you know, ostrich-like. You know, you can block it on your intranet, but virtually everybody has an iPhone or some other smartphone and can access it. And they're, you know, if they're going to be doing it on their off hours, um, they can do it on on their break time as well. So I, I honestly think you're much better served by, you know, being somewhat more realistic about it and and working with your employees to train them to be responsible social media users, as opposed to just saying no. But in any event, even if you do take the just say no approach to to social media, it's something you have to address. You, you you don't want it to be a gotcha at the end of the day where it's buried in some policy and some employee makes a mistake and posts something they shouldn't and, you know, now it's a headline for your institution and now somebody's lost their job. I think you're much better getting it there front and center and saying, here's, you know, we know you're on social media. Here are our expectations about, you know, what you will and won't do on social media. Let's talk about training for a minute here. So um, sexual harassment training is now required at many organizations. I know in the state of California, if you're an employer with so many uh, employees, you have to conduct this. And um, a lot of organizations will outsource the social media training, uh, the, the sexual harassment training to a provider. Um, are there any legal risks of providing training in-house versus outsourcing it. Um, If you make a custom training that you require your employees to take, are there greater risks than there would be if you outsourced it to a third party? You know, I I guess I don't think there really are. I I mean, assuming you're going to do it well and do a good job, I mean, that's always a a decision point about compliance type issues of can you do it in-house or you know, are you better off using a third party? And I suspect some of that is sort of the financial decision and, and what your resources are in-house. You know, we, you know, I assume use a mix of some some in-house and outside tools. I think, by and large, we have a large, you know, significant compliance staff. We have a significant public relations staff, so we tend to create our own materials. Plus, you know, there are things we want to be saying to our folks that are probably specific to our institution. So, so I don't think it's a it's a matter of legal risk. I think it's a matter of sort of your corporate culture and and whether you have the resources in house to really um, be providing that information. Uh, you know, I'll throw in a plug that that we Mayo Clinic actually has started a membership group, the Healthcare um, uh, Social Media Network, which is a membership group of um, institutions involved in healthcare. And, and one of the things we do is sort of crowdsource um, materials and, and share some of the the training materials that Mayo Clinic um, has created in house for for its employee base. So so I certainly think there are resources out there if you're starting from scratch. I'm sure there are good, good vended approaches, but I think there are probably are lots of industry approaches like our network um, that you can use to, to get together and, and, and you know, not reinvent the wheel but see what other folks are doing in that area. If uh, listeners would like to get more information about those resources from Mayo a Clinic, how would they do that? Uh, I'm going to embarrass myself and probably not have that on the tip of my head. But I think if you go... If you have a link, we can include it in the show notes. Okay, that'd be great. Um, And our our main uh, website is mayoclinic.org, 
if you just search social media on that, I'm sure that'll bring you to our social media pages, and you'll be able to, to find out how to do that. Excellent. So, listen, thanks so much for doing this, Dan. Just as a parting thought, um, you know, in layman's terms, very generally, you know, what big picture advice do you have for, uh, you know, people who are working for covered entities that maybe, you know, aren't actually providing, you know, the health care at the physician level, but they're involved with it? You know, maybe, I don't know, someone on the janitorial staff or, you know, someone working the admitting desk or maybe even a volunteer. I mean, what general guidelines would you have for folks like that? You know, I, I think it's a couple of things. It's, it, you know, I said it before, think before you post. And, and that's true beyond your work life, too. I mean, I, I have a slide deck full of slides of people posting things on social media that have caused personal or professional grief because, Again, I think we've, we've changed the paradigm significantly. It is now I share everything that happens to me with, with all of my friends, and friends is now in quotes because it's everybody that I have an electronic relationship with. So resisting that urge, and, and I don't know that it's don't post. It's just think for a second before you post. Um, and that reminder that everybody in healthcare, we have a shared responsibility regarding privacy. Um, we, we help people in some of the most difficult moments of their lives, and we are entrusted with some of their most sensitive and personal information. And as you pointed out, it's, it's not just the physician and the nurse who, who have that responsibility. It's all of us involved in healthcare. And so treating that with the appropriate respect and taking that minute, or, or it's not a minute, it's a couple of seconds to think, okay, am I potentially violating that trust before I post um, is probably the best advice I can give anyone. Dan Goldman, Legal Counsel with the Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com on Twitter at OnTheRecord, or send email to OnTheRecordPodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.